I'm Steve Fisher. What do you do when you have an overwhelming desire to help people, but also want to provide a good life for your family? Brad Schmitz is a social worker by training, with the heart of an entrepreneur. After taking a circuitous route to Alaska that took him from Idaho to the East Coast to Australia and Asia, he created a venture in Anchorage to provide adventures for those wanting to explore the beauty and wonder of the United States' last frontier and learn English. Most social workers get a master's degree to become a clinician or to make some decent money and such. But I, I only have a bachelor's degree in social work, which is at the bottom of the barrel of the economic scope in most cases. So I don't know, you know, I just had these different life experiences. So I figured, hey, I'll try to create something new, you know, maybe be a trailblazer in this regard. And that I hope that the financial benefits come with it as well. Brad's here to talk about what drove him north to Alaska on Life Slices. So Brad, let's start with a simple question. Who is Brad Schmitz? When I start to answer that question, Brad Schmitz is a husband and a father. I'm married to my great wife, Helena. We've been married for 13 years. And I have two great kids, Brad Jr., who is 12, and Anisha, who is four. So you studied social work and more specifically community organizing at Boise State in Idaho. What inspired that focus? I did a year of AmeriCorps a community service when I was 19 and 20 years old. And I moved from Boise. I went to college for a couple of, like a year and a half, but I wasn't really doing too well and, and wasn't really knowing what I wanted to do. So I took a bus from Boise all the way to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in August of 1995. And I got a job at Pickett Middle School working for the National School and Community Corps, which is a specific AmeriCorps volunteer service program. Now, Pickett is in the Germantown section of Philadelphia. It was probably like at least 90 or higher percent below poverty of the student population. It was a, like a, probably a 99% African-American student body as well. You know, this is like, you know, Philadelphia is just an old city. So it was just an old neighborhood and, and such. And I grew up in Boise, Idaho. And back in the 80s and 90s, Boise, Idaho specifically was not diverse whatsoever. So moving into a community largely dominated with African-American folks was this very new experience for me. And I just absolutely loved it. I just love Philadelphia. I loved working at Pickett. I loved working with Arnold Morris, who was the team leader of the team and, and living in this community and such. And I just had a really, really great experience while I was there. I had a chance to travel around the East Coast a bit and, and uh, go to New York City and D.C., Boston, Baltimore, etc. But I had this really a wonderful experience. So when the year was up, how AmeriCorps works, you do service for a year. And then at that time, you would receive an educational award of, I think it was $4,700 that you could use for future schooling. So I returned back to Boise. And in the, what was it, the spring of 1997, I then went back to college and used some of my AmeriCorps money to pay my fees and such. And at that time, I declared my, my major to be social work. It was kind of either between secondary education or social work, because the AmeriCorps team, I was doing a lot of social work type of programs. I ran a summer camp for six weeks in Philly. I, did an, I started an adopt-a-litter program at my school where kids came out on a Saturday in May and we had a huge pizza party and prizes and they cleaned up their schoolyard and such. And I did a lot of tutoring for kids and these things. So it just worked out that I kind of almost flipped a coin when I had to declare my major and social work was the choice, basically. 
there was no sense of going doing a startup and becoming a billionaire. No, not at that point. That was 1997, 98. So I was what? I was like barely in my early 20s. You know, a little experience here and there and such, but but you know, I was on fire. You know, I was I was I was really excited about going to college and getting a, a good education and learning new skills and, and doing those things. So so it went really well. When I was in college, I started a fundraiser at Boise State called the Can for Kids. And actually, I went to school in Pocatello, Idaho, my very first semester of college at Idaho State. And this fundraiser was done with my fraternity that I joined in Pocatello. But it was, a, it was really low-key and, and didn't really make a lot of money or anything there. And what it was is that we placed a toilet in the middle of campus of Boise State, right in the very heart of, of the campus of the quad. And starting on December 1st at 6 a.m. until December 3rd at 6 a.m., so for 48 straight hours, we got community celebrities to come sit on the toilet or the can <laughs> for an hour at a time and to raise money for a charity that we were sponsoring each year. So we gave out pledge sheets to all the celebrities that were going to sit. And then we also had like a jar and stuff. You know, we'd collect donations at, at the pod itself. We had coffee and hot chocolate, you know, for everybody that was coming by. We got a wedding arch donated that was over the toilet with Christmas lights. We had <laughs> Christmas music going and like the whole works and everything. <laughs> But over these two, these, like, so these two days, the first year we did Community House, which is a homeless shelter in Boise. And we raised money. I don't know what it was, like 15, 1600 bucks maybe from the event that was used to purchase Christmas gifts at the homeless shelter. And so that was cool. You know, it kind of it worked out okay the first year. And so that was a good event. And so we got great press coverage. Joy Burstmeyer was the executive director of the homeless shelter. We had the weather guy from the NBC station, Channel 7 in Boise. He was going to come do the weather from the toilet you know, on the first day. So we were sure to have her there at that time because she would get live TV coverage. But we had all the TV cameras in Boise show up then. We had the newspaper, the Idaho Statesman showed up and took a photograph and did an article and all these things. So I did this for four years until Christmas Day of 2000 or Christmas season, I guess, of 2000. And we raised about $10,000 from the event over four years. And it was really neat that the third and fourth years, we helped out the Idaho Migrant Council in Western Idaho to help farmworking families in that part of the state. Instead of buying gifts for people, the university was really warming up to our event. And they would then allow us to give cash to families for each kid that was represented. And we had a party at the Idaho Migrant Council office in December sometime to give them the money. And I, I contacted the Idaho Press Tribune, which is this teeny little newspaper in Western Idaho, like a circulation of maybe a thousand copies or so, you know, for each each issue. And they did like a 200 word article on us giving these families the money. And Humberto Fuentes was the director of the Migrant Council. And so that was published when we, we had a little party and we gave them the money and everything. And CNN out of Atlanta found the article. And they contacted him and they wanted to do a live nationwide news story on this event on Christmas morning of 2000. They were going to be interviewed like at 630 in the morning, mountain time. So we all drove from Boise to Caldwell. It's like a 45 minute drive or so. But myself and my buddy Leo was there and some other students. And then they were on air live and they interviewed Mr. Fuentes. And I believe a gentleman named Robert Arroyo was a farm working dad that had a family that received the money from the fundraiser. And he was interviewed 
And, you know, we were on live national television Christmas morning out of Atlanta, Georgia. So that was like, wow, that was like a huge victory. You know, that was really, really cool that our efforts in little podunk Idaho um, were being recognized in that regard. So that was fun. After that great national acclaim, you ended up in Anchorage. Was Idaho just not rural enough for you? I did AmeriCorps in Philadelphia. I made good friends with a lady named Cheryl. She was a teacher at the school I worked at. And she turned me on to the Outer Banks in North Carolina. So I I did research in 97, early 98, and I landed a job in Nags Head working for Kitty Hawk Kites. And then I wrote letters to all the churches on the Outer Banks. This is before internet or email or anything. And I wrote old-fashioned letters to all the churches that I could find that were listed on the Outer Banks. I said, hey, my name's Brad. I'm like 22 years old. I live in Boise, Idaho. Can I? I'm looking for a place to stay for the summer. I have a job lined up at Kitty Hawk Kites. And so I wrote all these letters to these churches. I don't know, a month later or something, I got a response from a Jonelle Belsey, who was in the Christian Scientist Church, right? A very, very teeny little building in Nags Head, a congregation of maybe 10 people or so. And her and her husband lived in Paris like six months of the year. They lived in San Francisco for a few months of the year. And then they lived on their beach house on the Outer Banks for the summers. And they were like, hey, Brad, you know, we're so excited. You know, you contacted us. We have a room you can stay in. And they were all gung-ho <laughs> about it and everything. So I was like, wow, it's really cool. So I ended up living on the Outer Banks. And I was like an usher for their church services on Sundays and on Wednesday evenings. And they took really, really good care of me. And then the next summer in 99, I ended up living in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I, spent, I just kind of worked the summer and had a great summer and such. But then after that summer, kind of North Carolina was out. And I had a buddy in Boise that I was roommates with at the time that wanted to go to Alaska. So it would have been in May of 2000, we packed up his little station wagon and we drove the Alcan Highway and we both got jobs at the McKinley Princess Lodge in Trapper Creek, Alaska. It's a really beautiful princess lodge, right? So we got a job at this lodge. It's like 25 miles from the nearest town. It's right at the base of Denali or McKinley. And we made a lot of money and just had a great adventure and such. And I worked there for like two and a half summers until 2002. And then it didn't work out at the lodge. And I ended up hitchhiking to Fairbanks. I had to choose. Basically, when I left the lodge, it was like I didn't have a car. So it was like I could go to Anchorage. But Anchorage at the time was a huge city. I didn't want to go there. I could go to Talkeetna. But a bunch of hippies were there. There wasn't much going on in Talkeetna. And I chose Fairbanks. Fairbanks had a university. So I was kind of attracted to that idea. So I ended up in Fairbanks. I got my first social worker job. I was traveling for a year and kind of and working in restaurants and stuff, but I got a social worker job in Fairbanks and I was a domestic violence counselor for a nonprofit, a women's shelter in Fairbanks. So I counseled men that were, were convicted of domestic violence. I would do classes with a co-facilitator in the jail in Fairbanks. And then we would do workshops in the community where these men, as part of their punishment for their crime, Besides doing jail time and paying fines and whatever, they would have to take these classes. They were a real feminist perspective. They're out of the, uh, what was it, University of Minnesota, called the Duluth Model of Domestic Violence Prevention. It was wild. You know, this was like my very first social worker job out of college kind of thing. I was like 28 or 29 years old, and I'm working with convicted felons and murderers and just like the whole story of them all and everything. And I was going to the jail, right, in the chapel. We would go to the chapel at the Fairbanks jail and would would tutor or like counsel these guys. These were, I mean, with all due respect, but they were absolutely horrible. They did horrible things to their partners. So that was pretty wild. So I was in Fairbanks for a time 
And I, I decided at the time that I wanted to go check out what it was like to live in a village. I heard a lot of stories about like villages around interior Alaska and and different things going on there and such. So through some contacts I had made, I landed a job for the Loudoun Tribal Council in Galena, Alaska. Now, Galena is a small, it's a Koyakon Athabascan Indian village right on the, on the Yukon River. It's about 300 miles straight west of Fairbanks. And in that area, it's kind of a hub village. A lot of boat traffic goes through Galena and air traffic. They're, they have a small airport there. And it branches out to many smaller villages kind of along that area in Alaska. But I was there all for about six months or so working for the tribal council and having a really cool experience and such. And I ended up back in Fairbanks. I was in Fairbanks until like May of 2004. And I was trying to work on putting projects together to honor veterans. And I learned about that the World War II Memorial was going to be opening in Washington, D.C., Memorial Day weekend of 2004. So I kind of made it my mission to be there for that ceremony. So I ended up flying out of Fairbanks to Idaho, driving all the way up to northern Idaho to Coeur d'Alene, and then from Coeur d'Alene all the way across the country to Minnesota, like went to Mount Rushmore. This is with my mom to Crazy Horse Monument, et cetera. And then I took a train from Minnesota to Washington, D.C., and I actually made it for Sunday of the opening ceremony of the World War II Memorial. So that was really cool. I'd learned of a project through the Library of Congress called the Veterans History Project, which is an oral history campaign to honor veterans by doing oral history interviews. And after I made it to D.C., this is a long story, but, but it's getting there, right? It all connects to Anchorage, Alaska. So I was in D.C., and then I went back to Minnesota, and I didn't really know kind of what was going on at that point. But I had a friend that had, was teaching English in Korea named Betty from Boise State. And she was like, Brad, you should come over here. There's a lot of jobs. You can make good money, blah, blah, blah. All you need is a bachelor's degree. Just bring your transcript, bring your diploma, and you'll, you'll get set up. So I ended up getting hired by a school in Ichon City, Korea. Boy, that was in July of 2004. I flew to Korea, and then I was in Ichon City for a time, and then I got a job in Bundong, which is like an uh, at the time was a really up and coming tech city just south of Seoul. And I worked at a hogwan there for, I don't know, I was there for maybe three or four months or so. And then I decided I needed to go back to the United States. Like I wanted to work on my veterans project and I kind of do that type that work. And I flew into Washington, DC when I came back into the United States. And then I ended up on a bus from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to Paducah, Kentucky. From there, I ended up in New Hampshire for a year. I organized a veterans dinner and like did oral history work up there. And then from New Hampshire, took a bus. I moved back to Idaho and in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. I was working in Coeur d'Alene. I organized a dinner and oral history project for veterans in Coeur d'Alene. And I met my wife in Coeur d'Alene, Helena. We got married in Colorado in 2009. Then she applied for graduate school in Australia. My son was born a Brad Jr. And then when he was eight months old, we moved to Australia. And she was studying at the University of Canberra to get her master's degree in environmental toxicology. And I, I was working and just kind of providing. And, and we were having this great experience. You know, we really loved Australia. It was this amazing opportunity. But when Australia came to an end two and a half years later, we had to decide where we were going to settle down as a family. Helena, my wife, wanted to do environmental research on the Aleutian Islands kind of where her family comes from in Alaska. 
and that I wanted to start a tour company. After learning about the huge market there was in Korea for overseas language programs, and after having lived in Alaska myself and had gone hiking and seen the Northern Lights, and at the time had seen Mount McKinley and done all these great Alaskan adventures, I thought, you know, I wanted to start a company that would combine ESL education with outdoor adventure in Alaska. So it made sense then when we left Australia, that was like October of 2012, that Anchorage was going to be our landing point. We flew back into Colorado. We spent some time in Colorado with Lena's family, then in Idaho with my family. And then it must have been in August of 2013, we drove the Alcan Highway. We had a 17-foot U-Haul truck towing a little car behind us. And it was myself, my wife, and a three-year-old little boy. And then we drove the entire Alcan to Anchorage. And we've been in Anchorage ever since. That is an amazing adventure. You're all all over the place. (laughs) Yeah, by all means. Yeah. So your website bio says that you have more than five years experience teaching English as a second language in South Korea, Australia, Idaho, Colorado, and Alaska. Do they really need English as a second language in Australia, Idaho, Colorado, and Alaska? (laughs) Well, you wouldn't think so. I mean, especially like Australia. You just wouldn't think that about Australia. But Canberra was a really neat city that it was a very, very diverse place. And I hooked up with a nonprofit, I forget the name of it, like uh, Southside Community Services or something like this. And they ran uh, childcare centers all over the city of Canberra. And, the, and it was primarily women that were employed as the, the child caretakers for these little kids, you know, little babies and infants and such in these childcare centers. And most of these women came from many, many different countries. So English was a second or even a third language in most cases. When I got hired, I would go like one day each week, like maybe four or five days during the week, I went to a different childcare center and then I tutored these ladies to get their homework done so they could earn a certificate in childcare studies. And I had students, boy, from El Salvador and Chile and Bangladesh and Thailand, I think in China. And this wide variety, this very, very diverse group of students. So it was really, really neat experience. I really, really enjoyed being there and then doing that. You started a company, Alaska English Adventures, and explain what that is. It's this idea of trying to combine outdoor adventure, which Alaska is prime for, with ESL education. So that we offer multi-day summer tours where students would come to Alaska and do all the great tourist things that people love about Alaska. You know, going whitewater rafting in Denali National Park, going gold panning in Fairbanks, going ocean kayaking in Seward, going hiking in various places around the state, learning about the really amazing Alaska Native culture, enjoying Anchorage and such, and then going salmon fishing. But we're combining that with a chance to do English lessons so that students could really work on and perfect their English skills while they're here. So doing that, kind of how it will work on the tours is it will have an English class in the mornings so that they can work on language skills, on knowledge about Alaska, on learning. Like the topics for our classes are all Alaska-based subjects. When we're in Denali National Park, our classes are going to be about Alaska wildlife. When we're in Seward, classes are about World War II history in Alaska. And there's a lot of that that's down in the Seward area on the Kenai Peninsula. So it would be a really kind of a cool feature to learn about local history and local culture and experiences. And then as we're on our tours, I kind of see that my job is to help the students engage in using their skills 
kind of everywhere we go at restaurants, bed and breakfast or Airbnbs or hotels, on tours, all of those kinds of opportunities. So they'll really enhance, hopefully in a short time, their skill set, which makes their parents happy, but they'll also have a chance to be able to have a great experience, do all these fun Alaskan adventures at the same time. To the bulk of your customers, are they actually school age? Well, so far, I'm still working on developing relationships with teachers, largely in foreign countries, to, to start off the ESL adventures. So in 2001, I went into regular tourism and I had a brochure made. I started working with a lot of Airbnb property managers. I reached out to hotels, to bed and breakfasts, and I started offering tours to English speaking folks just all over the Anchorage area, as far north as Talkeetna, as far south as Whittier, perhaps Seward, those areas. So we started generating some revenue and started developing clients and, and getting some experience. But really, kind of what's developing is when COVID hit in 2000, right, all the tourism was shut down, but I didn't give up. And I was spending time, and then I started developing pen pal relationships with teachers in foreign countries. I was spending time on Facebook in some ESL chat rooms, and I would see lots of posts from teachers that would say, hey, we have all these kids learning English. We're looking for English-speaking pen pals. Can you help us out? So I would reply and say, hey, I live in Alaska. You know, I run this tour company. We invite kids to come here. I would love to find kids in Alaska that could be pen pals for your students. So I started just reaching out around Alaska, and I found kids in Homer and in Seward on the Kenai Peninsula. And then I found kids in Fairbanks and in Anchorage. And over six or eight months or so at that time, I paired them up with kids in Germany, Poland, France, Turkey, and Brazil. And we started developing and doing these pen pal relationships. This year so far for this school year, since it just started, the teacher in France, her name is Priska, she reached out to me and she wants to do it again. So we're, we, I hooked her up with a new class. We have new kids in France going. And then a teacher in Spain contacted me through my website a couple of weeks ago named Anna. And we're, I reached out to the Spanish immersion program here in Anchorage and paired her up with a teacher here. So they're just starting their pen pal relationships as well. The idea is that kids in Alaska will be able to tell the great stories about Alaska and all the cool stuff to do, hopefully with an intent that their, their friends from these foreign countries will come for a visit sometime. And then I'd be more than happy to design a tour for all of them to go on. I was looking at your website. And there's a, a tab for testimonials. And you have these video testimonials. And all these people spoke perfect English. And I was wondering, what, <laughs> what were they like before they did, <laughs> they did the tour? Well, yeah, I, get, yeah, I don't want to like mislead you there. Those testimonials were all from local folks or from American folks that just did local tours like over the past two summers. Those were not ESL students for those tours. Those were local folks that I'm sure that spoke fluent English and, and, and did very well in that regard. I'm hoping that I have three tours planned that are listed on the website for, for next summer, for 2023, that we can fill seat with young people that are studying English and then bring them for those tours to Alaska to have a, a really, really great, you know, if not a life-changing experience in that regard. What are some things about Alaska that most of us would not realize? I've been to Alaska, but it was on a cruise and you, you get off at a, a particular port of call and it's very, it, it's almost Disney-fied. Yeah. It is all very perfect little 
villages right at the the get-go and you don't really get to see a lot of Alaska as Alaskans would see it. Yeah. What do you say about Alaska that people may may not realize? Something about Anchorage that I we've learned this when we first moved to town like 9 years ago that Anchorage is a city of roughly I think it's about 300 to 320,000 people. But there are over 100 different languages that are spoken in the public school system here. So Anchorage is considered is a very, very diverse, culturally diverse community. There's several high schools in town, but there's an east and a west high school. And what we were told is that per capita for the size, the size of the city, that east and west high schools are the most diverse high schools in the entire country, that there are more kids from more places, speaking more languages, and, and having very much various and different experiences in that regard. And I love people. I'm a social worker, and I'm a people person, and I love people from different cultures and that are different than myself. They, they have a, a different way of looking at life and doing things and such. So it's really, really a neat opportunity to be able to experience different cultures really up close and firsthand, but as well as loving the things about Alaska, like the amazing huge mountains and the rivers and the glaciers and those things as well. Something I love about Alaska is the rivers. When you're driving like along the Alcan Highway or you're exploring interior Alaska, you come across these rivers and they're just massive. They're huge. They're like nothing I had ever seen before when I was here. And I've learned since learned that there's roughly about like 3,000 rivers total around the state of Alaska. It's like this overwhelming amount because Alaska is so big in that regard. So it's it's really special. So you started as a social worker and now you're becoming a travel entrepreneur. So is the only way to get rich in social work is to take it to the next level and find a way to monetize it? I guess so. I've kind of figured that, right? I mean, social workers... I don't even, you know, most social workers get a master's degree to become a clinician or to make some decent money and such. But I, I only have a bachelor's degree in social work, which is in the bottom of the barrel of the economic scope in most cases. So I don't know, you know, I just had these different life experiences. So I figured, hey, I'll try to create something new, you know, maybe be a trailblazer in this regard. And that I hope that the financial benefits come with it as well. Now, I see that you give some of your proceeds to charity. What are some of the charities you support? One, there is just on a local level, there is a place called the Heart to Heart Pregnancy Resource Center in Eagle River, Alaska, which Eagle River is a little town about 10, 12 miles north of here. And they provide clothing and diapers and wipes and all of this kind of just essential needed items for families with kids from zero to four years old. As a social worker, when I was working for the tribal council and such, I took many, many mothers and grandmothers there that really were in need of these things. And they give away these items 100% for free. So it's like a really, really neat service that supports families just on the most basic type of things. Because there are a lot of folks that you know, don't have a, the funds or just don't earn it. Those things aren't accessible on a regular basis kind of a deal. So I'm always more than happy to try to support them and as as the company grows and we make more money, I think on the website it says, you know, that we want to we want to help support other companies that are are doing similar things here. You know, I'm I'm happy to do that as well in the future. That's terrific. Where can people learn more about you and and Alaska English Adventures? Well, my website is alaskaenglishadventures.com and then along the top there's a link for like 2023 tours so people can see the ESL tours 
once you're on that link, it's broken down into adventure items, like all the cool fun adventure stuff we would do. Then there's an education link, which talks about the educational classes that are taught each day. And there's a schedule link, which kind of shows where we eat and where we stay as we're going. And then there's an itinerary link, which just kind of links it all together so that it's easy to kind of see what the what each tour would look like. Well, Brad, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. This has been great. And I encourage people to look into going up to Alaska to, l- to learn how to speak English. Whether they're English students or if they're like from the lower 48 and they want to have a great adventure, you know that my li- there's links for like local day tours as well. Thanks so much for being here. Sir, thank you very much. My thanks to Brad Schmitz for being on Life Slices. It's clear that he's a man impassioned to do well by his family and his fellow humans. And in the process, he might just start another Alaska gold rush. This time to find the gold not in nuggets, but in the splendor and beauty of America's 49th state. And despite the climate, I don't think his trail will run cold. If you like this program, please subscribe and like us on social media and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beat McRaven's Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesley and Studios. Mm-hmm.